one of the keys to actually great organizations is how people will fall together about like what do they believe matters you know what do they believe creates success and then at the same time is how do they actually behave together when they're faced with challenges Starting in March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic sent shockwaves through the American labor market. Millions of Americans lost or left their jobs, and employers are having a tough time recruiting workers. From government leaders to economists and academics to business leaders and employees, everyone is asking the same questions. Where is our workforce? How has the pandemic impacted them? And what does this mean for the future of work? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, we conclude our series on the changing workforce by having a conversation with Corey Thomas, chairman and CEO of Boston-based cybersecurity company Rapid7, who highlights how business leaders are adapting to the new normal and what the future of work will bring. Good morning, Corey. Thank you so much for joining me today. Good morning. It's awesome to be here with you. Great to talk to you. We're talking about where the workforce is and what's happening with the workforce post-pandemic. But first, let's talk just a little bit about you and about Rapid7. You're the CEO of Rapid7, which is based here in Boston. It's a cybersecurity company. Can you talk a little bit about what cybersecurity is? It's probably more than what it sounds like. And just talk a little bit about the company, how big it is, how many people you employ, and what it's been like for the company during the pandemic. No, absolutely. So cybersecurity is just the field that looks at how you protect companies, organizations, and individuals from people that are actually trying to actually either steal information, compromise systems, or generally cause damage in the technology arena. Whether it's cyber criminals or nation state actors, we just try to protect organizations, companies, and individuals. Rapid7 is specifically focused on cybersecurity analytics and automation, which is about understanding how vulnerable companies are, helping them reduce that vulnerability level, and then automating the response and the detection about what's happening in their environment. So again, it's just about protecting organizations. For a little bit of background, Rapid7 has roughly 2,400 people around the world. We're a global company with roughly 10,000 customers. And on your question about what's happened in the pandemic, uh, it's been an adventure. We're a company that really is close-knit and really values how we actually create and build stuff together. And it's been a challenge in this sort of like slightly more transactional world about how you actually build that type of close-knit company and at the same time do that in a way where we're not together at all in any way. So it's been a challenge. Yeah, I bet. And what happens behind the scenes in a company like yours when there's a pandemic breaking out, the world is sort of in crisis. Our country was in its own crisis politically in addition to the crisis of the pandemic. Does this make you wary of, you know, is there an opportunity for more cybersecurity attacks? Are we more vulnerable when circumstances are like that? I am definitely not an alarmist, so I have to say this cautiously. But the answer is yes, and there's some fundamentals why. One, in response to the pandemic, we had to actually shift from what were still lots of manual in-person models of how we actually buy, engage, do logistics, support customers, to much more digital experiences. That rapid acceleration of technology, I mean, just look at the medical field, like overnight we went from, you know, only seeing our doctors in person to this whole virtual industry. It was supposed to take 10 plus years to actually get to where we got to within eight months of the pandemic. Whenever you 
deploy technology at that rate, it's almost guaranteed that you're actually opening up vulnerabilities and exposures to attackers and attackers were looking for that. So the pace of our technology deployment created a lot more risk uh, profiles. The other thing that attackers really take advantage of is they take advantage of trust gaps. And so when you actually have a lot of change and you have things like the funds that people were actually getting as part of the rebates and other things, that all of that creates avenues for attackers to actually social engineer and to compromise users. So yes, we saw a big escalation in the attacks. And just talk about your story and your career for a minute. How did you end up the CEO of Rapid7? Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting. I've taken a meandering road. So while I became CEO relatively in an early age, in my late 30s, it was not a straight shot. And so I started off as a technologist. And so like, you know, doing programming, system design, and architecture. And I realized that I loved the customers, I loved the work, but I was not great at it. And in the 90s, there was this weird thing, which seems very weird today, but I remember it, I was at AT&T and my boss told me, he's just like, you're really smart, but you don't really write good code. And so we're going to put you on the management development program. And I was like 21, oh, no. 23 years old. You'll be really and, good at telling someone else how to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like it was such a strange thing. But, you know, the company got sold on. And so I was constantly trying to figure out how things work. So I, I am a curious person. And yeah. so I just took most of my job trying to figure out how things work. And so I went to consulting to try to figure out technology and strategy. Uh, I went to Harvard Business School to actually try to like figure out like this whole sort of like world, this sort of like strategy and all the other stuff. I went to Microsoft to figure out marketing. I went to a startup parallels where I learned a lot about distribution and consumers. And then I went to Rapid7 to actually learn about culture because the founder and the CEO was just like, listen, it's all about what people believe. And so, and I did not join Rapid7 as CEO. I joined it as the head of marketing and products. But most of my career moves were me trying to actually figure out or learn something from someone or some organization. And then when I got to Rapid7, is that I joined the company when it was like 50 people. And it's just such a fantastic group of people. It was the right time in the right place. And we ended up like making something together. That was amazing. So was that CEO right? Do you think the founder of Rapid7, that it was about what people believe and it was about the culture? I think definitely he was actually right about that. Now, we've added some other pieces of the puzzle in along the way. But I think that ultimately, one of the keys to actually great organizations it's how people evolve together about like, what do they believe matters? You know, what do they believe creates success? And then at the same time is how do they actually behave together when they're faced with challenges? And so one of the things that we really leaned into is that, you know, we believe that we're explorers. We believe that we're constantly learning and evolving and trying to create success. But the hard thing that we actually had to do was what that meant is that when things weren't going well, we had to get more curious which is different than some other cultures. You know, some of the cultures where when things aren't going well, you get more accountable and you figure out like who screwed up. And so for us and for our culture is that like, and all the time things don't go well, just to be clear, like it's sort of not a straight shot. So like every single day, yesterday, there was a bunch of stuff that did not go well. Every day there's stuff that doesn't go well, but the key is when stuff doesn't go well, we're curious together. And that really ends up defining our culture. When I was in tech, and I started in tech back in like 96, before the internet, you know, kind of went through the whole internet growth, 
I was one of the few women in technology. None of my colleagues were women. And I, there were even fewer, way fewer people of color in the industry, right? And I think you're younger than me, but it, I mean, what was that like being in the tech industry or even in the strategy consulting industry as you were kind of moving through your career? And how do you think about, I think about it all the time, how we attract more talent into the industry because there's such huge need and we know there's such huge potential. And, and those two things don't aren't meeting up in the way that they should. When you and I were, were doing it, like if we applied those the models that you and I were in, it would just be horrible today and fall flat. Because in some ways it was, you were one of the few people that are, is a woman or a person of color or a black person. And the model is that, you know, the best we'll do is we'll give you a chance to actually become like us. And so we'll accept you in, but it was very clear. You had to sort of like adapt to the culture. Oh, a hundred percent. You had to be a white male. Exactly. So like that was the model. And so it was always a struggle potentially because you had to have a very strong sense of self in an environment where you actually had to adapt. Now, luckily, I was blessed with both wonderful mentors and supporters and family members who could keep me grounded on who I was and my identity. But I was definitely adapting. Like there was no question about sort of like we have one of our cultural values is bring you, bring yourself. There was never any environment out in where they're like, <laughs> yeah. bring your actual, um, bring your actual self. And, right. and so we had to retain this strong sense of self while we were actually navigating. And, and in some ways, I think about it as navigating more than adapting. I think the goal as leaders today is say like, how do you create an environment where as many people can be impactful and productive as possible. Because if you actually created an environment where you actually have the widest aperture of people that can actually come in with the least possible friction and actually have the highest levels of impact, then that's an edge in today's world. So what I'm trying to create is that, yes, you can actually talk about diversity, but like, listen, we're gonna have these tight labor markets, especially in technology for a while. At the end of the day, the edge that I want to create is that basically I can hire from anywhere, train anyone who has curiosity and wants to win together and deep aptitude. And they actually really want to do the work. They have to actually do that. They have to bring the things that people have to bring us is they have to bring us sort of like energy. They have to bring us their curiosity and the desire to actually do work together. But then the way that I think about at the core, and I think we lose this with the value of diversity interest in high labor markets, is how do we make it as easy as possible for as many people as possible to actually quickly have the highest level of impact? And that's getting rid of lots of the of the stuff that got in the way of people doing their best work. And I think there was lots of stuff that got in the way. Tell me about some of them. Yes, absolutely. When you actually have indicators of success that are just about the people that actually happen to be successful in leadership roles, then that's it. So like the idea of success is you actually have to talk a certain way. Like we had this whole thing about like who has like swagger and charisma. That was a really big deal, but it was really emulating sort of like a narrow profile. And by the way, you know, if you want to look objectively, is that there's lots of people and lots of leaders who have swagger and charisma whose companies yeah. are crap. And so uh -huh. like clearly that's not the primary driver of success. And so when you actually have arbitrary standards of what success is, that's actually something that gets in the way because it actually makes people feel like, I don't know what that means. And so you actually miss, like forget gender and race. You, you actually create this model that says, 
only extroverts can actually be successful. That's just crazy as, a, as an idea and as a philosophy. So that's an example of something that actually gets in the way. I only hire people that I actually know. <laughs> in a competitive labor market, what? You're only going to actually hire people that went to the same schools that you actually went to or the same types of schools? That's just an arbitrary thing to get in the way. I'll give you another example of something that was arbitrary that got in the way. Like every company, including Rapid7, had the notion of the time that you actually spent in the office as a requirement of success. Well, guess what? I'm still a deep believer in relationships and personal engagements, but I can tell you that I'm like, why does someone who's sitting at their desk need to sit at their desk and only do work at their desk in my office? They can actually do that at home. There's many ways to actually work and do stuff. Now, we still have to build relationships. And so like, I, I still think in-person time is valuable but it's not the only thing that actually matters. I can go on and on, but there's lots of things that we believe generate success. And if we are narrow, that limits our capacity to get the best out of talent. That's interesting. And how do you think, I just, I'm always so curious about this because, you know, my husband's in tech, I was in tech, you're in tech. I I remember listening to you at one point and you were like, look, everyone's in tech. We're run on technology. Like there's no avoiding it. And so, uh, you know, to some degree, you're going to have to understand it and be good at it in order to be successful in the future. We do a lot of work at the foundation in public urban schools. And it feels to me like the opportunities that that creates, that, you know, that, that the tech industry and all things being technical to some degree create in the future you know, us needing something like 10 times more computer scientists than we have today, but also all of the other people around them that that we need to understand it. What kind of alliances should there be between the industry or a set of industries and K through 12 education that would actually help kids understand what possibilities are there? And how do we give them more access to developing their potential around those? What I see is just there's no one has any idea. If you go in and just survey a bunch of ninth graders in the Boston public schools, I don't think cybersecurity would be anyone's answer to what do you want to do when you grow up. And yet it probably is what a bunch of kids would want to do if they knew what it was. We're not obsessed enough with our pipeline of talent. And there's many things that I agree with and disagree with, but we do not manage our talent pipeline in a way that demonstrates that we're actually really serious about it. Uh, I think there's no bigger indication in the way that we actually do the funding of schools. And that matters a big deal. Now, part of this is just that I think we all have to have a longer-term lens on talent. Now, assuming we have a longer-term lens on talent, the question is, what do we actually do about it? And what I would tell you is that I'm a much humbler person than I was even four years ago. I used to believe on your question about like, what do we do on school engagements? Is we go, we socialize, we activate news. There's a lot of complex stuff on the school engagement front. And my general attitude now is every company should be engaged, but they should be engaged with lots of humility. What we do for the schools that we actually spend time in is we go sit down and say, like, listen, how can we be most helpful? We're happy to go do the career discussions. And in fact, every class that joins Rapid7 from a college perspective, one of their assignments is they have to do a service project together supporting schools. That's one of their goals. The idea is that we actually go in and we ask the teachers, how can we be the most helpful? Part of it is the experience of being there is good. But another part of it is that there's lots of complexities and we have to be listening. And the reason I emphasize that in in, in your family foundation has done an extraordinary job there is that 
sometimes businesses always think that like we have the solution, just do what we say. And that doesn't work for something as complex as the model that we're actually talking about here. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting because, you know, I read that when we were in school, so like back when you and I were in K through 12, the IBM and the other big tech companies at the time went, you know, were collaborating with the government and they said, we need to develop computer scientists, right? And the government said, don't worry, we got it. I think we're going to start teaching basic in the schools. It did get introduced in the schools. Didn't go much farther than that. But but the government said we got it and we totally didn't have it. And now we have this dearth in computer science and engineering in terms of needs for the future. It just feels like there has to be a lot more collaboration between, you know, this funnel and, you know, what emerges as potential employees, because those class sizes are much smaller, right? We've like the baby boom, we've been through it. And now our employee base is like a shrinking number of people on its own. And it feels like, and I don't know if you've, if you're feeling this, but it sounds like based on the conversations we're having, people are reconsidering work. You know, what do I want to get out of work? If there are two parents in a household, do both of them need to be working or is some time better spent? And you talked about how your employees want more things than ever. Can you talk a little bit about what it feels like to be hiring right now in this kind of post-pandemic, still in the pandemic environment? Yeah. No, so employees are reevaluating what's important to them. And I would say that this is especially acute on younger employees, but it's also especially acute on mothers. Companies actually have to be attentive curious and paying attention. We have to be incredibly thoughtful about how we actually offer career options to people who are parents and what their expectations are around basically where they have to be and how they spend time and what's the structure of managing life and family and work. And I think the simple rule and and what people are looking for is just like, don't make me do as much face time. Like I actually have a lot of stuff going on but people are renegotiating what's the face time in, in, in the office and some of the experience. On the second hand, if you want to look at another extreme of the thing, is that this is probably one of the most entrepreneurial generations. Now, I'm going to date myself a bit because I've been trying to really, really understand this. They're entrepreneurial in ways that I'm still trying to figure out. Because I got to tell you, I don't know what a social media influencer is really. Like, I know I've watched the documentaries, I've actually read it, but like, I talked to lots of Really, and I, I've interviewed them, like actually. But like what fascinates me is that the sense when you're actually talking to people of like the potential of the ability to actually create their own paths. These are folks that are actually really saying like, I'm going to create my own path and I'm going to redefine it. And they're not looking for sort of like the traditional path. I actually think that's just something that we just have to acknowledge and understand and actually work through. And we're working through all of that right now. The, the thing that I would say, though, is that you have to center yourself. And I'll just talk about where we centered ourselves. Is that employees, no matter what, I just said, listen, we can be flexible about all this stuff. But we have been and will be committed to development. We're a developmental organization. And so what we are looking at is people that come in and actually say, like, I want to grow in some way. Uh, and we have multiple ways that people grow, but they're committed to growth. Now, part of that is that that commitment to growth means that they're willing to actually learn and learn in different contexts. And, and that works for us. And we're being flexible there. The other part of it that's actually tricky, and this goes to the you know, remote in person, is that we talk to some of our managers, leaders, and experienced people. And it's like, 
hey, we need people to teach people. We're a development organization. And this has been one of the things that actually have allowed people, no matter where they are, to actually come together. Because like by and large, most of the people in our company believe that we love the idea of being a developmental organization where like we're providing opportunities to grow and learn. And like we're all teaching each other and we're all learning from one another. And that's been sort of like the thing that says like, listen, everything's negotiable about how we approach it. But at the core, we have to be like developing talent because at Rapid7, you know, over 70% of our leaders and managers are developed from within. And so that development mindset is the thing that helps us navigate some of these difficult changes. Do you feel like you're having a hard time hiring people right now? Are you feeling the crunch? I mean, we also, we're in Boston, right? And so it's a highly competitive place. No, we're not feeling the crunch in hiring. We're actually hiring record numbers of people. The balance is that like we also have higher attrition pressures than we've actually ever had before. And so I would say on net, we actually feel like we're actually doing well across it. But boy, do I wish that like, you know, if I had my dream, I would actually have record low attrition and record hiring, um, but you can't have it both ways. Um, but on that, like, look, we added several hundred people last year. And so we grew our workforce well over 10, 15% to meet customer demands. And let's just also face it, is that like in an inflationary environment, we have the ability to actually stay competitive with compensation rates by and large. Not everyone has that ability, but we do. And so on balance, we feel like we're doing well, but we wish it would be a little bit different. Do you think at all about or advocate for changes in immigration policy? I mean, given that it it seems like there's a bit of a brain drain that comes out of our academic institutions every year and can't stay in the country. Absolutely. And I I think it's an and. We have to do better at actually developing talent as a country in the U.S. And that's both K through 12. That's also like in the tech sector. I've talked before about like academic elitism is, you know, look, I, I, I was the product of some very, very good schools. But in the tech sector, sometimes we have this delusion that the only talent exists in like sub 30 schools, which is just absolutely ludicrous. In Massachusetts, we have some amazing schools that are not Harvard, MIT, which I love Harvard, MIT, but like we have a lot of amazing schools. I think part of the mentality, but I think we have to look holistically at the entire thing. And we have to actually have immigration support. I think one of the great things about the U.S. is that we actually can bring people in and we benefit when we actually do a great job bringing people in from all over the world. Yeah, I totally agree with you. The last question I have for you, because I've heard you talk about over the past year and a half or so about our democracy and about what you're worried about in terms of, you know, the conflicts that have arisen and how we just are such a divided country right now. How do you think private industry plays a role in all of that? Even like some some would argue that social media can sometimes be a very negative impact on that. Also, there's plenty of companies who encourage their employees to vote and give them time off to vote. There's lots of ways to encourage participation in the American democracy. How do you think about your role as a leader and just companies in general? I think about it in a couple of ways. We can absolutely be a model for organizations that don't have to agree on everything, but they can make progress together there will be things that we fundamentally disagree with. But I would say that there's also lots of things that we agree with that we completely ignore because we actually focus on the things that we actually disagree on. We all agree that we actually want to develop a well-trained, well-prepared workforce that has jobs. Like everyone agrees with that notion, but there's no space to actually come together and say like, all right, we agree on that. That's a really big deal. And by the way, that can change lots of things socially 
if we actually have economic inclusion and if we actually develop talent and we actually have jobs. And so one of the things that we focus on with companies is I would say that companies can actually be big factors in the stuff that drives meaningful change for our society and the stuff we actually largely agree on. And we can actually spend time together actually driving that stuff. The second thing that I think that companies and organizations should do is that we can actually reduce some of the stresses that are actually like in our society. So when you think about some of the inequalities, companies are also perpetuators of some of these things. And while it may be a long road to actually get there by training and developing workforces, that can actually be a material thing. By looking at how we actually develop our leadership team, some of the stuff that I was talking about earlier, is just like, hey, we moved away from the world, but basically you actually have to, what the definition of a charismatic leader is to the definition of like, what's a highly effective leader. But as we actually move about like, what's a highly effective leader, that actually makes lots of rooms for actually successful leadership. And that's the actual key. And companies can actually do that. These things may not be things that are headline grabbing, but I'm often a believer that some of the biggest changes can actually happen little by little and they compound and companies can participate. The world and the US looking very different 20 years from now than it looks today. And in fact, I tend to be a bigger fan of the quiet, difficult work than the flashy, big work. But that's just my personal style and approach. Yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your perspective on what's happening out there in the world of hiring and work and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Rapid7 CEO, Corey Thomas. As the leader of a large business in an emerging industry, Corey has a unique perspective on the impacts of the changing workforce and the implications for the future of work. I hope that you enjoyed this special series of Catalyst for Change. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.